So at this time, though, only 12 kids per grade level were identified at the school that we had to get bused to, to be a part of. So at a really young age, I realized that brilliance was distributed equally, but opportunity wasn't. So that engine kind of always drove me to, to care a lot about education. the voice of our friend ThinkLaw founder and CEO Colin Seal at the jump of this episode. I wanted to, I, I just love that quote from our interview and I wanted to get that um, out to you first before you heard our great theme song in my voice. Um, this is Doug Roberts, founder CEO of IEI and welcome back to Talk Soups, episode 11. I'm coming to you live from the windy completely unsoundproofed uh, podcast studio <laughs> IEI World Headquarters here in Northport, New York as a blazing northeast wind rips across Northport Harbor right into uh, the teeth of this building that I'm in, this old building where our office is, and you're going to hear, you can just hear the wind gusts while I'm talking to you. That's like, you know, you know normal talk soups stuff you get to hear cars and trucks drive by out downstairs on the street but today there's a about 30 knot wind coming in i can see uh harbor looks gorgeous honestly usually it's real flat it's a real deep protected deep water harbor um surrounded by land and uh usually this time of year it's pretty placid pretty calm um but there's white caps out there it looks like the ocean in this little harbor it's pretty it's pretty stunning so yeah, you can see all the flags out on the docks and stuff are blowing straight at this building. And you can hear the... Here, listen to it. Hear it. Ooh, sounds like ghosts in here. <laughs> so, <laughs> welcome to uh, a podcast put on by a company that does a lot of other things besides a podcast. Sorry. Um, we uh, don't have a studio and probably never will. But the point is that we want to get these voices out to you and tell these stories about this great work that the folks um, in our world are doing. And so today, you heard Colin at the beginning, and I've also got Jeff Anderson, the CEO founder of Audio Enhancement, two companies we do a lot of work with, two companies who do a lot of work with our superintendents, who do a lot of listening, who spend a lot of time talking to our IEI educational leaders and um, learning from them, uh, developing, developing the tools based on their needs that and the needs have changed pretty rapidly this year, as we all know. So uh, I'll get to that conversation with with Jeff and Colin soon. But it was it was really fun to talk to them um, and get them on the podcast. So um, you know, they say it's always darkest before the dawn. We got some great news today um, in our in our country. We got some great news that the. The one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine is close. Close. And it's, I guess, you know, you know, we don't really cover public health on this podcast. But I guess the idea is that they're going to be able to give it to healthy people uh, or healthier people, younger people. Um, and it's one shot and it's maybe not as effective. It's maybe only like 80% effective. But it once that gets into everybody's arms, then it greatly reduces the amount of uh, people who will get sick. So I'm, I'm going to, during what has been sort of a, 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 a tough week around the education world in a, a variety of places nationally and locally, um, I'm going to take this as a, as a little sign of, of hope, um, light at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, there, there's some, some tough stuff this week. Here on Long Island, uh, I know of at least two students who passed, uh, high school students, um, and, uh, it's, it's just incredibly, it's incredibly sad. People are, people are struggling. This, this pandemic is no joke. We're, um, we're grateful for all of the great folks we work with and, 
you know, to have the opportunity to put together an opportunity, to have an opportunity to put together uh, a, a, a meeting for our members at a time when we just know that folks need to, to get together, listen to each other, talk to each other, vent, process, um, problem solve. So, you know, that we're even in a position to do that and able to do it safely following strict COVID protocol is just, you know, we're, we're, we're grateful for it because we, we, we know pe- people are struggling. People are, um, are tired of being at home or being in their office. People are tired of wearing masks. Uh, people are tired of Zoom calls. People are tired of staring at screens. Kids are probably tired of learning on screens, those who are. Um, you know, we, we saw in this country this week a group of people who, I guess, are just kind of bored on the Internet and had a bunch of money, went to Reddit and decided to go um, short a hedge fund on GameStop. I mean, it's just unbelievable stuff. But all of this, you know, including the most recent, uh, you know, the, the unrest with the insurrection on January 6th, more and more people are, are saying that some of this crazy stuff is happening. People are getting into trouble because it's winter and everybody's just kind of hunkered down and not going out and interacting with each other and not and on screens and on the internet um, talking to each other and um, you know I'm I am excited that we got this news about this vaccine today and that maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel maybe we can get back to doing normal things soon um, you know the event that we're having in a month is not going to be normal like our normal events but we're going to be able to get folks together safely and we'll, we'll do a lot of mask wearing um and you know we'll be outside and we'll have to bundle up and all that but um you know it's uh, I, i'm feeling very lucky that here at iei we can get the iei family together a couple of times this year um and do so safely so i just i wish that for for everyone out there who's you know for whom this this long COVID winter is is getting old, um, I hope you can find ways to connect with people and um, just wishing everybody good good thoughts and good feelings because this was, it was tough to read about about two students uh, losing two students this week and you know if you follow our friends at Gaggle they're always um, out there you know saving kids lives and talking about the work that they're doing and you know where would we be without tools like the, that at this time, but they can't catch everything, and not everything happens on a device, unfortunately. You also had um, some some other kind of interesting stuff, you know, getting back to our, <laughs> getting back in our lane, which is education. Um, we, I was really excited to see two of our, uh, uh, two of our friends from IEI. One, uh, Susan Enfield is on our advisory board, Dr. Susan Enfield, Superintendent of Highline Washington. And Dr. Anthony Hamlet, superintendent superintendent in Pittsburgh Public Schools, the one with an H, the big Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, um, who is going to be with us at the leadership retreat at the end of February again, after um, not being with us last year. We're glad to have him back. Anyway, the, they were two of three co-authors on a piece making the case for public schools jumping in and and being at the front of the vaccination effort. And then uh, Getting Smart, um, one of the sort of leading education blogs also came out with a piece that we just shared on Twitter via uh, my high school buddy at Matt Villano, um, a, a, a similar piece about how you know schools can be at the forefront of getting this vaccine, vaccination effort moving forward. So that that's that idea is starting to pick up steam, and you know we're here to we're here to to amplify it, um, and you know just can't wait till till we can make that a reality. The other thing that I thought was really Neat this week um, was reading um, a a parent magazine, a parenting magazine called Romper. We also shared this on Twitter. Um, you know, they're always taking the perspective of 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 their readers who are parents. Uh, wrote a really powerful piece that kind of sounded like our all the podcast episodes we shared from our fall. Retreats, you know, the episodes uh, six, seven, eight. I think they were seven, eight, nine. Um, by the way, I skipped an episode. I think I skipped seven at one point. My apologies. I hope you all didn't miss episode seven. It probably would have been brilliant if I'd recorded it, but I didn't. I just 
somehow went from six to eight. My apologies. Um, so anyway, we, we, we played the recordings of our, we released these right before the Christmas holiday. We played the recordings of our fall retreat conversations, and so many of the themes were similar. So here we are, a group of, you know, um, self-selected, um, go-getter, forward-thinking, innovative district leaders talking to each other about how we can get our students and our communities through this challenge and how we can come out on the other side stronger. And then here's a journalist who writes for a fairly large readership of parents, um, specifically moms, um, writing a story about, you know, what are the things that we, the, what are the conclusions from this, this bizarre hybrid homeschool experiment? And, you know, it's been hard on parents, but there's been some good stuff. So I think that's, it's another silver linings piece. We shared it on, on our Twitter feed. Um, but it was, we're all kind of seeing the same conclusions is what I'm excited about. And it, there's a lot of talk of, of equity um, in, in this conversation. And look, parents are taxpayers, parents are voters. So if the more we tell the story, the more you know, journalists, please continue to write this story. Let's get it on TV news. Let's get the word out that there are structural changes that, that superintendents, at least the ones that we work with, are ready to make in districts to increase time to close learning loss, uh, you know, or learning loss that, or to make up for learning loss that has happened during this, this pandemic, uh, to potentially change schedules, increase instructional time. Uh, restructure, you know, find more time during the day for one-on-one or small group. The, our folks are ready to go. Um, the things that hold them back are bureaucratic and policy-oriented. But if parents and citizens and community members and voters and taxpayers start to apply political pressure to boards of ed and state lawmakers, some of the stuff might start to happen and, you know, these these amazing superintendents that we work with might be able to start doing some of the acting on some of these ideas that they come up with in our panels and workshops. So, I don't know. This was a, a, a strange, bizarre, sad week in a lot of ways. But um, I'm, I'm going with a message starting to coalesce around some of the things that have been positive in this last 11 months that we can put into our public education permanently. And I'm going with the Johnson Johnson vaccine being good news. And um, I'm also really excited about uh, about our upcoming hybrid socially distanced event. And I was really happy to talk with two folks I really enjoy working with, with Colin and Jeff. And I hope you enjoy this discussion. We get into, well, you'll, I won't tell you too much about what we get into, but it's um, it's great to know it's it's great to know how much both of these leaders want to be there to listen to what districts need as the needs change. Um, I also very much appreciate, I always love hearing a founding story, and these are two really great founding stories, how they how they started their companies um, or, or came to see their company get started and then take over, in, in Jeff's case. Um, and, you know, we also just talked about some of the leadership challenges, and we, we were very, we had a very frank conversation about how tough this has been. Um, you know, when when this when it became clear in March that the there was going to be some major economic fallout from this thing, all of us who lead organizations had to do some soul searching about what were we going to do, how are we going to get through it, and um, it was really nice to talk about that with Jeff and Colin. So, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I'll be back on the other side. Good morning, welcome back to Talk Soups and CEOs. We are on episode eleven. We are back publishing episodes each week in large part due to um, our expert director of marketing, Sarah Kroll, taking control of this and making it the trains run on time. So we appreciate that, Sarah. And it's good to be to be out talking to folks each week as we lead up to our big uh, leadership retreat in Las Vegas coming up at the end of February, which it's unbelievable. We're in February. We're at almost 12 full months of pandemic life. And it's wearing on all of us in certain ways. But um, I'm really excited this morning to have with us Jeff Anderson, who's the founder and CEO of Audio Enhancement, and Colin Seal, who's the founder and CEO of ThinkLog. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing, Doug? 
Doing well. Thank you for the invite. All right. I'm doing all right, too. It's a little later in the morning for me than you all. You're out west, so I appreciate you getting up early and spending the first part of your day with us. Um, so I wanted to just sort of, you know, we we use Talk Soups and CEOs as a, an opportunity to get interesting individuals we have the privilege of working with to sort of tell their stories and talk about what, why they do what they do, how they do what they do, the kind of stuff that you share when you do your two-minute drills with us, but um, we'd love to, to hear some of that story here. So Jeff, I'm going to go to you first. Can you just give us sort of, um, tell us the audio enhancement story. How did you get into this, this business? What, what made you decide to start a company versus, you know, keep working for other people, et cetera? Tell us, tell us your founding story. Well, our story is very unique and, and interesting. I think um, it actually goes predates myself some. It, my my mother started the company as I had two deaf brothers, and she this was in 1978, and she was looking for a way to uh, let them hear in classrooms, in mainstream classrooms, and she want what she wanted was to have them be able to be in the mainstream classroom and to hear the teacher well. With that desire, she went off and kind of built her first, not to market it, but just her first one for my brother in the classroom, a, a wireless microphone system, which is what we do, and uh, put the teacher with a microphone and put speakers in the ceiling so that they could hear no matter where they were in the classroom. And what we found out was that in helping do this for my brothers, we found out that everybody in the classroom could hear better. It wasn't just a, a situation where a teacher wearing a microphone was good for people that were hearing impaired, um, but we found that it was good for all students. And with that, eventually teachers, friends, um, neighbors started asking if we could build them one and put one together for their kid and their kid was not hearing impaired. And then from there, it ended up starting to be a company and now we do it nationwide and in Canada and um, we, we, I don't know, I think last year we did 30,000 classrooms. So it's, it's grown a wow. lot. And, um, so there was probably, our, sorry, go ahead, finish. No, I was just gonna say, and there, there's throughout the country. Yeah. There was probably a pretty cool moment that, um, you know, I'm sure your mom told you about at some point where she realized this is, this is more than just me stringing some wire up to help my kid. This is, which is amazing by the way. And, uh, what a cool mom to just go innovate around the problem, right? Work, work the problem and help her kids. But there's probably a moment where she said, you know what, this could scale, right? Do you know anything about that, that moment? And where were you at your life at, as you're watching all this happen? You know, were you young? Were you an adult? And, and how does that, how does that look from the perspective of a son? Well, it was great. And there were moments. And so she started this in 78. I was born in 69. So I was young and watching some of this, but as she was raising two uh, handicapped kids and she had four children, um, it didn't take off right away because she had so many responsibilities and one was not starting a new company. Um, I joined in 1993 out of college and one of those things where she's like, can you come and help us? And I said, I, everything I learned in college said, don't work for family. And so they, uh, but she said, well, just give it a shot for a short amount of time. And then, you know, and I had other plans and other jobs. And so, she, but she talked me into it and I tried it um, and it hit the things that I wanted to do as a person. And which one of my main goals in life was to help supply a good job for my brothers. And this, she convinced me that this company could do so. And when I joined in 1993, we had seven employees um, and we're doing, you know, like 700,000 a year kind of thing. And so it was not a very big company. Uh, and then the aha moment that you're talking about was probably when uh, there's two of them that kind of happened simultaneously, but uh, we got into a school in Florida that did it in every classroom, which was a model school um, for the state. It was a middle school named Dakoe Middle School. And they put us in there um, as a legislative mandate. And when they did that, it got all kinds of exposure. Um, and that was kind of one of the aha moments. Dan Rather did a piece on the company, which was another phenomenal kickstart um to have that kind of That's exposure cool. so th those two things really put us out in the limelight good for you that's a that that's a real neat story thanks for sharing um and and good for you and um 
you know, now you're, you're a big national international force. So, um, very, very neat. Colin, um, let's, let's hear, I've, I've heard you, you tell your founding story a few times during our two minute drills, but, um, let's, let's hear what got you into this. Why, why did you decide to start this? And, um, you know, what's your founding story? Sure. Sure. So, um, it's interesting because I've been thinking a lot more about um, my experience of, of being in elementary school. And what really struck out was that uh, I was a kid who was on free and reduced lunch. I was a kid who was the first generation of my family born in this country. And um, we were definitely in the struggle. My dad was incarcerated for a decade for selling drugs. But I remember being in first grade in Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn. And like to add to those struggles, I would say like, I wasn't a bad first grader, but I was like gifted at being bad. I went above and beyond. I was really creative with it. Like we had this woman, uh, a science lab lady that would come bring her science cart to our class. And her name was Miss Lipschitz. And really, how could you not get in trouble when her name is Miss Lipschitz? That's not even on on me at a certain point. Not even my fault. And one time she asked me to write a 100 word reflection of my behavior. And I sat and I thought about it. I did the math in my head as a first grader. And I said, all right, I got you, Miss Lipschitz. And I decided to write the words, I hate science exactly 32 times. And it gave me exactly four words to write, I hate you too. Oh no. And that was me in first grade. And what was so crazy about this, Doug, is like, I ended up getting transferred or I took a test for my behavior and I had a really bad speech impediment. And the test revealed that I should have been in gifted and talented classes since I was in kindergarten. So now I'm getting bused to this school where the same exact behavior that I used to get in trouble for was now required. Mm. Now I'm supposed to question over and over again and it's not considered willful defiance. Now I'm supposed to be collaborating and talking to my peers and it's wow. like a welcome behavior. Yeah. So at this time though, only 12 kids per grade level were identified at the school that we had to get bused to to be a part of. So at a really young age, I realized that brilliance was distributed equally, but opportunity wasn't. So that engine kind of always drove me to to care a lot about education. And I taught middle school and high school math in Washington, DC and in Las Vegas. But in Vegas, I actually went to law school at night and I realized, I don't know what's going on here. But as a kid who's never been student of the month or even student of the day, I graduated top of my law school class. Because law school wasn't about rote memorization or spoon-fed learning. It was the kind of critical thinking you needed to lead, innovate, and break the things that needed to be broken. So when we start looking at this moment where people are starting to talk about racial equity, social justice, how do we create a space where like we actually can make equity real, especially at the classroom level, I realized I sat through enough implicit bias trainings. I've had enough courageous conversations. What can we actually do? What can we actually do? So in our space, it's all about helping create a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good. We do it through workshops. We do it through our digital curriculum that uses real life legal cases and upper grades, fairy tales and nursery rhymes and lower grades. Because you start thinking about all the shady characters and children's stories. You look at Jack and Jill going up the hill. What in the world is going on on this hill? Jack falls down. Next thing you know, Jill falls down. Like our kids can handle that level of questioning a lot earlier than we give them credit for I think so, of you every time I read um, fairy tales to my kid at story time, like uh, um, the, the Jack and the Giant Beanstalk. Why was the mom letting her kid climb up some shady beanstalk into the sky? Like, you know, like, do you know where your kids are? It's 10 o'clock. Oh, my kid's climbing into the sky on a beanstalk. Um, yeah, how about the one, yeah. how about the one where they, where the dad is, is like, I'm going to sell the kids. Uh, right. Uh, Hansel and Gretel, like, oh, we can't it's take care of the kids. I'm just going to leave them in the woods, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, this just... cannibal woman. I mean, these are like horrifying stories. But, 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 before, I mean, sometimes you look at that, but we're like, well, what about like real world? Because you know, we do a lot of things on current events and holiday themes. So, like, you know, we've got this one case, real life case, of a guy who put tombstones outside of his house to decorate for Halloween, but he put names of the neighbors on his tombstones. So imagine your middle schoolers looking back and forth yeah. around: Is that free speech, my property, or is that a public threat? At the same time, we've got kindergartners thinking like a lawyer to advocate for which turkey should be pardoned on Thanksgiving and making their case as to why their turkey should be spared. At the end of the day, we're giving our kids the tools to do the same exact things that we want to be able to see as critical thinking for 21st century learners. But at the same time, 
we're getting teachers and instructional coaches to adapt these skills to the actual day-to-day -day instruction. So it doesn't feel like one more thing. Critical thinking becomes the thing that they can weave in with their SEL priorities, classroom management, even test prep, so that we can truly have a space where all kids have access to critical thinking. Because for us, that's what equity looks like. When all students, regardless of what kind of district or school system they're in, are learning how to lead, innovate, and break what needs to be broken as part of a tier one instructional outcome. So you basically, you're, you're at the, if I could describe both of you accurately, you're both building solutions to, um, to, to increase opportunity for kids, regardless of what they're bringing to class, whether it's a um, physical disability or um, you know, a, a lack of critical skills being taught early on. Um, and one of you is doing it with more, you know, I would say audio enhancement, would you say this is correct, Jeff? More, you're more on the physical material, physical equipment side, but I know you're getting more into other stuff. Colin, you're more on the kind of curriculum um, idea side. Um, but what I think is, is interesting too, is that like, I think Colin, you, I know your business is a lot younger than audio enhancement. You're, you, you've recently had the aha moment like a couple of years ago, maybe. And you're now, you're in the scale up mode, um, which is exciting and fun and, and scary, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, I've, 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 I've eight people on my team and uh, I would say in the beginning, we did a lot with principals and, and you know, one-off schools. But now that we're having like district conversations, talking about doing cohorts, we're talking about working with master teachers because one of the things that I discovered just through like IEI and other opportunities to really speak to folks is like a lot of school leaders spend 90% of their time on 10% of their most struggling educators. But that leaves a lot of educators looking for more, hungry for more. So we're doing much more of these master teacher cohorts where between the master teachers and, and instructional coaches, we're able to really get this sort of opt-in environment where nobody has to feel like the one that has to ask people to do one more thing. And we get that level of buy-in to really create um, so much momentum and sort of grassroots sort of build up. And when I heard Jeff talking a little bit about how like, you know, you had that one school that, that really became like that model, I feel like this is the year where we're finally getting to the point where people were like, wow, like I'm seeing what Think Law looks like systemically, even with our parent workshops to be able to see what happens when we truly have a comprehensive strategy to make everyone speak the same language around this level of access to higher order thinking that typically does not exist, particularly at our high poverty school buildings. Great, thanks. Jeff, can you, can you share a little bit about where, where you're headed beyond the initial, uh, the initial solution that went out into districts what what are what are uh, what are you thinking about for the future what are directions you're heading well uh yeah definitely and not just the future but let me expand a little more on what we're doing today beyond just a microphone and what we so we do the microphone which is a critical component again so that every student can hear no matter where they sit and no matter what direction the teacher is facing or where she or he is in the room what we've gone from there is we've had a lot of demand. All of our innovations have come from educators that have asked us to expand the, the faculties and the facilities of the actual microphone. So we have evolved a little bit in letting the microphone have a function of a safety button. We had a lot of administrators tell us, this was 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, say, hey, look, teachers need a way to alert an administrator that they're, they're in distress. It could be medical, it could be a firearm or anything in between. And at first I'm like, what on earth are you talking about? Cause I'm doing audio, I'm not doing safety. And they came yeah. back and explained to me, look, buttons on the walls or a phone in the room. Those aren't things that are on the, on the teacher at the moment of an emergency. But your microphone is on the teacher at the moment of an emergency. So we need to have you put in a button in this microphone that they wear every day, all day long, that they can push and let the office know. So we've now implemented a button in the microphone, if the district chooses to use it, that will alert the front office where the teacher is standing. So it doesn't matter what room they're in. They could be in the cafeteria, the library, their homeroom, or you know, someone else's room. If they push that button, the, there's a monitor in the front office that'll alert where the teacher's standing. Another, and, it, and they also can not, they can do it either with a camera 
with or without a camera. Some districts say I want a camera so I can see and hear what's going on in that room. I don't want to just bust through the door. Others say I don't want a camera, but those that say they wanted a camera took us to a next step of, in our innovation, which was the, a camera in the room. And so once we had a camera in the room for safety and security, other educators said, well, let me use it during the day. Let me use it for professional development. Let me use it so that teachers can record themselves and self-reflect or record themselves and share a lesson with a peer or record themselves and share their lesson with a homebound student. So uh, we've been doing that for years, but now obviously during the pandemic, that's really picked up where people are using cameras in classrooms all over the country. And we've done a lot of that. And then the last thing that we've done is uh, we also had educators say that if we're gonna put an amplifier in the room, if we're gonna put speakers in the room, why can't we also be their intercom at the same time? Why do they have to pay somebody separate to run more speakers, another amplifier and more wire in the room? So we've now enhanced our amplifier to be dual purpose um, where it could actually be an intercom system simultaneously as an audio system, simultaneously as a safety system and if they choose to do the camera simultaneously as a remote learning tool. Mm, that's great. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, you're, you're touching in on several different aspects of, of school operations there, um, which is uh, which is what creative people do when when things you know get thrown at us. Um, did, how much of this, what are you seeing changing in district uh, needs, purchasing habits as a result of, you know, the last the last 11 months of pandemic? Well, how it's affected us is twofold. I explained that we do four things all on the basis of the microphone. And we saw a huge pivot in March where our intercom system was not talked about nearly as much as it was because it was one of the hotter things being talked about. But our intercom system kind of slid towards the back of the four and so did school safety slid towards the back of the four. Um, but the two that came running to the front was audio and also the video component. Um, and we had a lot of districts that have moved forward with the audio because we did some studies. One of the stories that happened to us in March was I had districts call me superintendents that said, hey, you know, I bought all those microphones from you. We love them, but will they work if a teacher is wearing a mask? And I was caught off guard, really, to be honest. I, you know, yeah. when did I ever test it with a mask? And when was the last time I was in a pandemic and stuff? And so we, we got into a school, got permission to do that. We went in and tested N95s, cloth masks, disposable masks, all this stuff to see if the microphone would even work. And luckily, we came out finding that they work just as well with or without a mask, but that even though it's an essential tool and even though every classroom in this country when teachers don't wear masks should also have audio enhancement at every teacher's um, disposal so that they can do, get better education that way for the students. But we found that when they wear a mask, they work great and it's even more important than when they're not wearing a mask and it's already yeah. critical and so it became beyond critical. So that happened with the pandemic. And then the ca classroom camera was crazy because people were saying, look, we knew we wanted this camera before, but now's our opportunity. Let's take advantage of not only some of the funding, but also the climate change dramatically yeah. um, for classroom cameras. And I could see classroom cameras coming for a while. And I kept saying, ah, 10, 15 years from now, we'll have cameras in most of the country's classrooms because we didn't think that cameras were gonna go on a police officer. We didn't think cameras were gonna go in buses. We didn't think cameras were gonna go in restaurants, but guess what, they're there. So uh, yep. they, should, they should be in classrooms also. And that's the other thing that's really picked up is our camera solution that works with our audio solution uh, in conjunction. We call that view path, but it's, that's what we've done. Nice to haves became must haves quickly, right? Absolutely. Colin, what have you seen in terms of um, changing in the needs of the districts you're working with or um, you know, changing purchasing habits? So, um, I want to point out a theme about what Jeff, what Jeff just said that really gave me a lot of affirmation about what our approach is with Think Law, which is if you listen to what he was saying just now, he's like, well, educators said, and educators were telling them, and educators were noticing. What it is, is there's a humility in what their approach has been. And I think that in, 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 in my work, I've always approached it with that same level of humility. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I don't know what's going on. Really, what comes down to is like, 
I don't even understand necessarily how these things are actually going to make a difference in the work that you were doing. When I first started Think Law, I had no idea that people would use this curriculum as part of an in-school suspension program to really change the way that kids went about decision-making skills as part of what can get them to be in class and stay in class going on. So when we started talking about getting into the space of the pandemic, what I've realized was the same way that on the tech side, a lot of things needed to be accelerated, there was a simultaneous issue of having this pandemic around racial injustice also hit kind of an all-time high in terms of people's alertness and awareness of the issue. So now you've got this space where people are talking about these things like culturally responsive and sustaining practices, but don't necessarily have a lot of concrete tools to do so. You've got districts that are taking on massive curriculum rewrite uh, uh, processes. And I'm like, well, do y'all really have the capacity to do this and do this well and sustain it? At the end of the day, like, what if it turned out that the issue wasn't about throwing uh, more cultural references into your math problem, but the way we engage with this math altogether. So I could be in an algebra class, and if I give you a framework that goes from you solve an equation, oh, Doug did it wrong, fix his mistake, but instead we're doing Doug did it wrong and Jeff did it wrong, which wrong is more right. And now we've got these kids that are going back and forth and they're shifting from asking what and how to to asking why and what if. They're the ones that are centered. They're the ones that have the power. And we can't talk about equity if we're not talking about that power dynamic. So by making that much more concrete and sustainable, I've listened to teachers, I've listened to cabinet members, and they've decided that the approach is, let's get our content people involved. Let's get these master cohorts of teachers involved. And we're going to write curriculum and we're going to test it out. We're gonna test it out by the very users of that curriculum and we'll tweak it using these think law strategies. We'll also have your curriculum as a way to build that muscle memory. And before you know it, you've got these really powerful solutions that they actually work. They're actually what people wanted because they got to craft the way in which it's engineered to, 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 to actually in a practical way uh, uh, address the problem specifically that we would not have had had we developed these things in a box. So um, one of the really special things about being a part of IEI and having a chance to actually get constant feedback is even when you're not really asking for it, the IEI type of soup is always on their toes, always thinking. It's almost like they want to run all these companies themselves. And I feel like it actually really helps us a lot to think about things we would normally not have had a chance to think about. <laughs> that's an interesting observation. They want to be running your companies. I mean, that's um, it's. I think that I think you're. It's a way to compliment our folks, which we appreciate for being entrepreneurial thinkers, even though they're in you know public office as superintendents. Um, and the the two do do not have to be uh, opposed. I mean, you can be. Look, these folks had to completely change on a dime. Jeff, you mm -hmm. talked about how they had to completely change um, their priorities and rethink what was important and not important. And that that's not always easy in government work. And um, you know, but I think it's been it's been interesting. I, I I've been observing that. Um, I've never seen these are people who, you know, you ask them if they if they can come to a a tea on to a Tuesday, nine months from now, and they'll tell you, oh, I've got a meeting at this time and that time, right? Now, all of a sudden, it's like all bets are off. They don't know what they're going to next. And, um, you know, they've, they've had to adapt. And we're, we're seeing that the, the job is changing. The job of superintendent is changing. And it's not for everybody. And some are, are moving on. And more, we're having a bunch of people come into jobs. A bunch of people move jobs. Um, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of turnover right now in district leadership. And um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. So can I add one more thing about the yeah. pandemic, pandemic in particular? You know, before the pandemic, I might have traveled like 100 days a year doing different workshops across the country. I find that the virtual PD model is far more effective because the same way we look at students, right? And we say it's not really about teaching, it's about evidence of student learning. The evidence of teacher learning, the, the evidence of administra administrative takeaways is so much more powerful in the distance framework where all of a sudden, watching you actually submit the work, actually see you do it, having you record your classes, getting that feedback loop in, 
it's actually so much easier to make sure that whatever you got to gain theoretically is actually applied into practice and we can see it and we can have you reflect on it in a way that was much harder to do when you just sat there in, in, in this sort of framework and you just kind of hope that people would kind of take it and, 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 and move it move it along the way. And I think Jeff is right. We actually tried using video about three years ago and we even got the whole product, whatever, but like it was hard enough to get video used when it was mandatory in some of those schools, much less when, you know, some, some guys coming in with this critical thinking thing and wants to see your critical thinking in practice. So um, really appreciate the fact that this space has actually allowed us to up the game on uh, the impact of our workshops and everything that goes with it. Yeah, that's interesting. I wanted to, that's a good segue to, you know, we're seeing how districts do business change significantly and how they do business with the the um, private sector, you know, solution provider community. And look, I when I was running, you know, primarily spending my time doing strategy consulting work for ed tech companies, the first thing I would tell founders and sort of break the break their bubble around whatever cost you know, sales and marketing cost uh, forecast they'd put in, I'd say, you got to get on airplanes, you got to go see these people. School districts don't buy on Zoom. School districts, you know, they, they need to see you. They need to shake your hand. They need to look you in the eye face to face. Um, and that really was the way business was done for the most part in districts. And, you know, this thing, I think, has completely upended it. Or is this temporary? Because um, it's not just about, you know, the, the business decisions by leaders and administrators. But, Colin, you just brought up that you're getting a lot of um teacher coaching done and, and teacher professional development and leader professional development done in a way that wasn't done before. And Jeff's saying that now everybody wants cameras in their classrooms, whereas before that was seen as, as an affront. So um, how much of this stuff do you think is going to stick and how they do business? How much of it do you think is temporary? You know, uh, Susan uh, Enfield, one of your soups, uh, one of the IEI things this summer, she said, uh, the status quo has like amazing muscle memory. So you could do all these crazy things. You have this massive like pandemic and all these, and it's just like, at the end of the day, you can actually snap back like relatively quickly. Sometimes if you're not very intentional about what, what, what you want to keep. Um, and I think she was saying that specifically. She was having a discussion there about the agrarian calendar. Right, the this current school calendar that we have, the two months off in summer and all that, and uh, and also the the school day. It was all these like kind of major structural things that we are in school from eight to two or whatever it is. But I I'm I'm seeing an increased interest in in video as a tool in video professional development services. And I'm definitely seeing that, you know, it starts to become more of a just to, to do business with, with a with a vendor as a district. It's now all of a sudden a lot of work to you know get someone to come into the office and sign the thing. And it's almost like the pandemic has shown people that this can actually be an effective way to communicate. It's not how you want to maybe build a relationship, right? Video is never going to provide that sort of thing that humans need to connect with each other, which is why our members are, you know, telling us, don't bother if we can't, if we can't get together in person safely, it's not worth traveling, but please do try to get us together safely because we really want to get together and help each other. So that's why we're, we're doing that hybrid model. But um, for transactional stuff, I think we're going to, we might see districts start to do a lot more of it this way and therefore save themselves a lot of time and money as well. Yeah, I, I would say you're right on because uh, the people that have called us, that have talked to us, that we have had productive uh call it zoom calls have all been for the most part have been past relationships where a relationship was already started um and then we can we just continue a, a partnership and a relationship i don't think we've started very many solid relationships via you know by computer on there so okay, it, i think it is interesting i think there'll be a lot of I think people will, I think you will still need to start. I think just like what you said, there is, uh, it's hard to build a relationship that way. It's not as hard to sustain one that has already been built. So it's interesting. Um, I, I have a book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework to teach critical thinking to all students. And it came out in April, 2020. So it came out right at the start of the pandemic, basically. And um, 
I've had kind of the inverse happen. I've had a lot of people um, from district cabinet levels, um, like get the book, kind of randomly just have the book. And that's actually been able to like lead relationships a lot. And I thought that, you know, I, th I think even if you think about the way we look at like email marketing and things like that, I found that uh, by like writing in Forbes and really talking about uh, this whole sort of connection between the, the need for racial justice that's actually tangible when it comes to instruction, this idea of, uh, really understanding the, the different connections between distance learning and equity, this idea that connectivity and access means more than just a hotspot and a working device. But we've always had challenges around like who gets to be connected, who gets access when it comes to these like higher order thinking opportunities, these advanced academic learning opportunities. Um, it's been an interesting way to like almost have our people, have the people find us. I, I agree. It's probably hard to be able to get a new relationship in terms of you finding other people. But um, I, I think that like being able to communicate really clearly and authentically about the problems in a way that resonates with folks that are also having those same problems. It's really it's been really odd for us. I mean, we've we've had free webinars with 500 people attending, you know, um, and it's been it's been an interesting way to sort of build an audience of folks that um, even without meeting them in person can still feel this deep connection and, and, and sense of like, you know, they know you, they understand you and like they're moved by like the approach. So um, there's a real, there's a real, what we're learning is that there is sort of an art and maybe a science to helping people connect and engage online and it's not easy at all um you know i take like some of the you know because again we're we're gathering the soups and some of the partners in person and many of the partners are not there but doing virtual and we've been trying to build up uh, a knowledge base about how to coach the virtual partners on how to how to do this and how it's different than in person because it really is um, and I think a lot of it comes from what we've seen even just like you know we had our little hol holiday gathering structure you have to be really structured about time because inherently the human brain does not want to sit in front of a screen. At least the adult, the adult executive human brain, maybe like the 12 year old kid wants to right, like play games, but like just sitting and talking to people on a screen, it just feels like we're just conditioned to think that you do that in person and not on a screen is, is our sort of thesis thus far. So, you know, I think as a, as a, as an industry, as a sector, I think we all need to, potentially think about how to structure online engagement in a way that is really different than it's not just the in-person meeting on video. Um, if, as we learn more about it, we'll share it, but that that's what we've learned so far is that it is completely different. And so if you structure things down to, you know, building seven, five, 10 minute chunks into things so that people can get comfortable with whatever tool they're using, that that makes people feel more engaged, obviously keeping it short. Um, but I, I do think, I do think everybody on the district side must be seeing that they're spending their time talking to people outside the district or even internally. I mean, how about, you know, if you live in a big, like you, you worked in Clark County, Nevada, right? Like that, that's Las Vegas, whether you're not familiar, you can, you can spend 45 minutes driving from one end of the county to another to get to a meeting. Why are we doing all this driving and spending all this money on gas and all that? Like, I think that that element of um, efficiency is starting to seep in for, for everybody. And I think we'll, we will see changes. I was thinking about my own travel. I used to, you know, let's see, where are we now? We're at the end of January. So I'd be gearing up to go to the big AASA in a couple of weeks to go see everybody, see you guys, see our members across the country, um, spend three, four days, you know, a couple of days traveling out West, right? That's, you know, but we, we may evaluate all those things that we, you know, once a month I was going to something just to see people. And now I may evaluate whether I was getting, whether we were getting what we needed out of, all of that travel. And I think people might be more streamlined because it's also nice that most people are now home at five or six o'clock with their families. Maybe they weren't every day of the week before. I know that's true for me and it's been really nice. Do you guys see any sort of, uh, any, any of these new trends holding on or anything else you're observing that you think is gonna change about how we do business with our district partners? Well, I, I, I think that people will be much more accustomed to, you know, an online meeting, a Zoom meeting, um, 
you know, especially for follow-up at our, what we do, we, where most of our business is done at the superintendency level. And so, and I think that uh, some of those guys will, and ladies will actually do some of the follow-up like, Hey, what if we do a zoom meeting in two weeks instead of, of course, Hey, what if I fly back and see in two weeks? So, yeah. Let's talk about just leadership in general. You know, this is, this has been a time that has been trying for anybody who's leading anything. You guys are both leading organizations. Um, you know, what, what have been some of the leadership challenges you've, you've faced in the last 11 months, whether it's staff morale, budget challenges, you know, maybe you face, I know I've been very transparent. We, we faced a sort of cliff where we thought like, you know, are we going to be, are we going to be around? Like we gather people in person and we can't do that. So are we going to be around in six months? And we just had to get real creative and work around it. So that was our big thing that we worked through, but I'm curious, you know, as, as leaders, what have, what have been some of the things that you've been really trying to focus on in terms of getting, getting the people that you lead through this? Yeah. So um, if I can be honest, man, like personally, this has been such a, such a immense time of like tragedy and loss and struggle, you know, having my, my grandmother uh, fall to COVID in Brooklyn, New York, um, seeing just so much like death and suffering um, just, and with, with everything happening in the political environment and, 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 and all these other things, it's, it's, it was a lot to kind of find a way to keep the engine running because I also have a, a very small team. And, you know, when you have a very small team, Doug, like you, like you all do, it's like their struggle is your struggle. Like you feel it, like you see it in their faces and you're just like, all right, like, what do we do? What, 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 what do we do? So um, it, it's, it's almost became so crazy that we would just pull up our vision and mission and our core values, like over and over again and be like, all right, just, we had to keep on reminding ourselves, like, what is the point? What, why are we doing this? We're doing this because we know now more than ever, why critical thinking is so important. Why it's so important to create spaces where like we can have this generation of, a, this next generation of adults. These adults I'm done with, like, like we're, we're over, we, we blew it, okay? But this next generation of adults, if they can get to a space where they can listen to understand, speak to be understood, disagree without being disagreeable. If we can create that, then like, that's magic. Imagine what a world would look like if our kids had that healthy sense of skepticism that allowed them to really be able to discern facts from opinion and, and really be able to find out information at a time of information overload of a lot of unreliable information in that process. What would that mean for our COVID-19 numbers? What would that mean about our vaccination numbers? And I just feel like when you have that strong sense of why and it gets deeply embedded, we've become, I, I, I've become like the head cheerleader of this cause, the head evangelist. And um, it's, it's, it's something that I realized even when I meet with soups, when I meet with other leaders and educators, they're struggling too. The stuff that they have got to go through is a lot. Later today, I'm meeting with middle school kids in Laredo, just talking to eighth graders because you know what? I need that. I need to make sure that I'm staying connected to young people and being able to get that spark. So it's just really an idea that uh, Elena Aguilar, who just wrote his book called Culture for Equity, talks about a lot emotional resilience. It doesn't mean being tough. It means feeling all the feelings, knowing where you're at and really get into a space where it's like, you can be open and honest about the emotional taxation of what goes on with this world and its work and be able to lead more authentically from that place. Great. Yeah, Jeff. and on our side, it, it was difficult too. Um, you know, I mean, I kind of had the same rationalization as you did, Doug, as far as I know you were doing person to person. And all of a sudden in March, well, I had an interesting conversation with the state superintendent in one of the states in early March. And uh, she told me, well, there is no way we're shutting down schools. You know, the governor has told us that we're not going to shut down schools because you know, X, Y, and Z. It was early. People didn't know what was going on. And that was like on a Wednesday. And then on Friday, the governor comes out and shuts down all the schools. I mean, things just changed so rapidly. And so it was scary from uh, the business that we have, you know, 135 people were uh, counting on a paycheck, not knowing if there was going to be 
right. any business or assistance or what was going on. And, you know, schools are shut down and they are our only customer. So now what are you going to do? And how long can you hold on? And, you know, when are they going to talk to you again? Because um, I, I, I remember it's not the same, but 9-11 was a little bit like that where it wasn't appropriate to call people. It wasn't appropriate to talk business. Right. And uh, those first few weeks of the pandemic, it was, you know, I mean, it was, you know, you certainly don't call and say, Hey, can I follow up on this thing? I sent you right. you know, what do three you do weeks that? ago. Um, so it was, it was scary. And then we just, luckily things, uh, you know, some people did, did got back to their offices and then we were able to do a little more. But, you know, there was sort of a, and I appreciate that, Jeff, there was sort of a, a call, there was like a, a fatwa on um, email marketing, really led by the person Colin mentioned before, Dr. Susan Enfield, one of our members. She just, that she blasted this tweet that went viral. Um, sorry, she put out a tweet that then got blasted viral, basically telling all of us to not um, send pitch emails, right? They didn't like no new like, just give us time. We're freaking out was sort of, I'm paraphrasing her. Um, and that it went all over the industry, got written about in a couple of industry periodicals. Um, so then, you know, I'm thinking like, I'm thinking back to me 10 years ago when I was a, a, a sales rep at, at um, Amplify, which was, we were called Wireless Generation then. But like, if I'm sitting there in my seat and I'm just, I've got a boss who wants me to deliver numbers and I go, well, look, this you know, really important superintendent just put out on Twitter. I'm not supposed to talk to her. Um, how do we, how do you get your business through it? And I was very worried for a lot of our colleagues about, you know, how they, how they would get through and, um, and talking to, to you, you two and other founders out there. I know that there've been those challenges. And, um, I think everybody, a lot of the people that we know in our universe, both our superintendents and our partner leaders, we're all, we're all tough on ourselves. We expect a lot of ourselves. And I think one, one thing that, leaders have to do right now to, to, you know, stay sane is call survival success. And, you know, um, sadly, it means that you don't always make it, you don't always survive with all the same people in the boat that you had with you when you started this, right? Some companies have had to downsize and it's, it's sad. And there is a, I want to uh, give a plug for this while we're on here. There is a pretty aggressive um, viral effort on LinkedIn led by Jeff Patterson, Gaggle CEO, one of our partners, but I know all of us here participate in it of sharing and resharing job posts. The, it's been cool to watch the community come together to try to help folks who got displaced by this find um, find new opportunities. And we're all, we, you know, we're always here to help with, with things like that. So if anybody out there listening is looking or is um, advertising a position, because some companies, let's be honest, have done really well in this. If they're their business model has worked really well for this environment. And, we're, and, you know, I'm thrilled for them and I'm happy for them. And what you, it's what you do with luck that, you know, determines your success. And others have had really terrible luck with this. And, um, you know, we feel for them, but those who survive are, are winning. And um, we've just tried to elevate and amplify those stories while the good work you guys are doing. Um, so let's, let's just sort of finish up with a little um, prognosticating. I'm curious, is there anything that you see happening with the work in districts now that is new? That's a that's a sort of pandemic innovation that you think really has staying power and and is a really good good new story that that can be told in districts. And you know, feel free to share a district that you're working with. But what's something you're seeing that's happening in districts right now that that you think is going to be a really good thing going forward? So. Um... One thing that I'm seeing is that uh, we have an opportunity, I think. Uh, more and more, people are starting to scratch their heads and saying, you know, maybe maybe there's something about this term like learning loss that might be a little bit deficit-based, right? And I'm not saying to ignore the reality of some of the academic struggles that kids have had, but, you know, there's this fear that for certain kids who, if we're being honest, didn't really experience a whole lot of joy in their learning in school could end up in a space where they're getting even less joy because it's nothing but remediation. It's nothing but intervention. So as I'm seeing more school systems starting to think, huh, 
What if we call them acceleration academies? What if we use this as a time to really think about how we can like push the needle on this idea of like these structures around you're in this grade, so you're doing this work in this class, but we're actually thinking about like, wait a minute, we can actually have a chance to accelerate what students are being asked to do at a more rapid clip because we probably have to. We're probably in a situation right now where we have to. It, it gets me really excited for this idea that like, we now know that there's a lot more flexibility than we ever could have imagined. I just hope that like we get a handful of school systems that can take the lead on that effort and basically show how it can be done going forward because man, a world where every kid goes to school and gets challenged every single day is not the world we had before pandemic. And I don't really wanna go back to that normal. So I'm super thrilled to be part of that conversation. Hmm. Jeff, uh, any? Uh, well, on our side, again, we talked a little bit about the cameras in the classroom and not everyone's using ours, but I think what is going to stick in education and with parents is I don't think snow days will exist anymore. I don't know. Oh. You know what I mean? They're not going to close. They're going to have the districts around the country used to have a digital day once or twice a year. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there'll be snow days. I'm not sure if there'll be, you know, when kids are sick, there will be a expectation that they can catch up via video. Um, I think there'll be, there, there'll just be a lot more resources now that they've been forced to do this, um, that the parents will expect a certain amount of video to yeah. for their kids. That does make me a little bit sad though, Jeff, because I don't, we don't get as much snow as you do out there here on Long Island. And so when we get a snow day, I'm like the dad who's with the shovel making the kicker on the sledding hill. And, you know, <laughs> I hope they'll give us at least one or two a day. I think, a I think you'll still have snow days where they're home. I just don't think that they'll count them as non-academic days, which, you know, I mean, uh, it's all different, but I, that's yeah. all I'm saying is they'll. Yeah. You know, I think. There are some public health innovations going into schools that might have been seen as invasive before that maybe, you know, maybe we'll all accept and might, might, I mean, the amazing thing, and there was just a new CDC study, I think yesterday, that largely the spread is not happening at school. So as this thing is raging and surging through the community, there are people who are getting it elsewhere and not, and, and bringing it to school, but they don't believe it's happening at school, which means that we're going to see some states where they've had schools closed start to open. Um, you know, that's maybe there's learning in there uh, for all of us, but how we can kind of, yeah, because the, the old wives tale is that it's not a wives tale. It happens like when school opens, little kids start getting sick and they get their parents sick. Um, and then there's also been a really, I think a really interesting and exciting flurry of engagement with the community and transparency from a lot of districts just as they have to communicate about the policies and the practices and the, the cases that have come up and you know as a parent in our own district we've, we've just seen a flurry of inbound communication we didn't have before from them so i think that those are good things that that could stick in this work for the future and might i add there doug like a, a broader understanding of what the community actually is you know we, we have seen some stories where listening to the community made people feel like there was going to be this massive demand for in-person learning opportunities. But then when they opened up and realized, well, well, wait a minute, I thought that these kids who were struggling and whatever were all going to be there. It turned out that like they listened to really loud voices in the community. But when it comes down to school systems that maybe did a better projection of that, they utilized focus groups. They had like smaller conversations around these ideas as well to be able to realize like, okay, now we understand a much more equitable way to go about our communications because some parents are going to come to us. Other parents, we've got to make sure we go to them. Yeah, right. Well, let's leave it there. This has been a really good discussion. I want to thank Jeff uh, from Audio Enhancement. I want to thank you, Colin, from Think Law for being here. People want to learn more about either of our guests, you can go to www.thinklaw.us, right? Yep, knock.com.us. And you can go to www.audioenhancement.com. And of course, everyone knows how to find us. Thank you for listening, everybody. Jeff, Colin, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. All right, folks, that was episode 11. Thank you very much to Jeff Anderson of Audio Enhancement. 
Thank you so much to Colin Seal of ThinkLaw. Look forward to seeing you both next month. I am also looking forward to this week ending in about an hour because I threw out my back this week. <laughs> it's been brutal. I've been limping all over town and in and out of physical therapy. So looking to rest up and have a little more normal week next week. So first week of February. Can't believe it's already here. Everybody have a great weekend. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like it, please do hit subscribe. Give us some stars. Tell your friends. Tweet it. Instagram it. Um, whatever you do. Maybe don't Reddit it. I don't want to get involved in any kind of investing hedge fund schemes, huh? What a, what a, what a crazy week. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it.